I welcome you to Savior's name this morning to our adult Bible class, for those who are in the building here, and for others who are watching online. We trust the Lord will bless us as we gather around his word this morning. Let's turn in the word of God to Leviticus chapter 1, please. So Leviticus chapter 1, and we'll read the opening nine verses of this chapter. Leviticus chapter 1, entering in verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. And if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a meal without blemish, He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire upon the altar, and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priests shall burn all on the altar, to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Amen. And we know the Lord will bless His Word to our hearts. We'll just unite together in prayer as we come to consider what lies before us in Holy Scripture. So let's unite together in prayer, please. Father in heaven, we bow humbly and reverently in Thy presence, and we come unto Thy throne of heavenly grace by the One whom Thou hast ordained. We thank Thee for the Lord Jesus. Again, our hearts rejoice in Him. Lord, we have no merit of ourselves. Lord, we are at times in awe and wonder that we are permitted to speak thy name, to approach unto thee. And yet, Lord, we thank thee that we come upon that work that has been finished. We come through and by the blood of Christ Jesus. And we thank thee, Lord, that there is one in heaven who is pleading our cause, who represents us. And we come, Lord, for Christ's sake, that thou would hear us, O Father, that thou would bless us as we assemble here. Remember the internet broadcast. Remember, O oh God, our Sunday school. Remember our other Bible classes for our young people. And we pray, Lord, that thou would have a word in season for their hearts. May their hearts be prepared. May the Spirit of God be dealing with them and striving with them, even in the days that's gone past. Lord, that they have been thinking about things. They have been convicted of their sin. They have this anxiousness upon their soul. They have a fear of death. We pray that thou would be working upon our young people and our children. We thank thee for what thou hast been doing. We thank thee, Lord, that thou hast been saving, bringing little ones unto thyself. And, Lord, we thank thee that thou hast laid thy hand upon them, and you have blessed them. And we pray, Lord, that thou would continue to bless our young people and our children, and that thou, God, would speak very powerfully and definitely to their souls this morning. And while 
O God, they're there listening to the word. We're here at thy feet. And Lord, I pray that thou would cleanse me, cleanse me in the Redeemer's blood, and fill me full of the Holy Ghost. Lord, thou hast promised that if we asked of thee for the Spirit, that thou would give to them that ask. And so, Father, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus that thou would fill us with the Spirit, and by faith we receive that blessed promise in filling. Help, Lord, and may the Spirit possess the vessel that thou would have me speak as thus and thus saith the Lord. May it be a blessing and encouragement unto thy dear people. And so, Lord, meet with us now. It is thy presence that makes the feast. It's what we thought about on Tuesday evening. And we pray that as we are drawn nigh unto thee, O God, that thou would draw nigh unto us. Do us good, Lord. Bless us and hear our prayer. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, with an eye to his and thine everlasting praise and glory. Amen. The last time I began a series entitled Shadows of the Savior, and we considered an introduction to the book of Leviticus. And this morning we're going to begin to look at the first of the five Levitical offerings that's found there. Now I feel that I must say to the young people who are here and that we're at the Youth Challenge Week with the Reverend Nelson, that for you it's going to be a double portion uh, this series because that's the subject that he spoke on. And I know, well, I don't know how much of an overlap there will be, but I'm sure there's going to be some. It's a bit like a, a London bus. You wait for one and then two come along at once. Now, there's a scientific reason and principle why that happens. And we know that the Lord always has a reason of why these things happen. But the book of Exodus, it ends with the building and the erection of the tabernacle according to the directions that God had given Moses. In other words, the book of Exodus ends with God providing a place for Israel to come and worship Him. See, God desires us to worship Him. He desires us to draw near unto Him, and He cares about how we worship. We can't come to God in any old way we like. We must come the appointed way and through the means that He has provided. We meet with God. We draw near to God. We engage with God on the terms that He has prescribed. And this is the principle that He was establishing here by type and shadow in the Old Testament. Of course, there is only one way to God, and that is through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very fact that the Lord, we find, we read of the Lord saying to Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, instead of Himself addressing the people, well, it teaches us that the people were in need of a mediator. Acceptable worship and acceptable approach to God is what's being laid before the people and before us in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Now, for many, the most that they know of the burnt offering is from the jokes. The jokes that's told about the dinner that has been left for too long in the oven. It has that distinctive smoky flavor and the charred appearance. And really, for many, that's as far as it goes. But the burnt offering, it is one of the most significant offerings, and it's the first one mentioned. Now, we have four sections in this opening chapter. We have the introduction in verses 1 and 2. We have instructions concerning the burnt offering, um, that burnt offering that was taken from the herd in verses 3 to 9. We have instructions about the burnt offering that comes from the flock, in verses 10 to 13. 
And then instruction concerning the burnt offering uh, with respect to the fowl of the air, birds in verses 14 to 17. It's all referring to the same offering. Keep that in mind. So we're going to begin to look at the burnt offering this morning under two headings. Begin, as I say, because it's going to be really a two-part looking at this particular offering. So we're going to look at two headings this morning, the particulars of the burnt offering and the procedure of the burnt offering. Firstly, the particulars of the burnt offering. In verse 2, we really have a general statement regarding all the offerings. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. It is verse 3 that begins to deal with the burnt offering. Now, just to mention, the Hebrew word for offering is the word korban. Korban. And it signifies something that is brought near the altar, a sacrificial present, an oblation that is offered unto the Lord. It comes from a root word which means to approach or to bring near. And once again, we notice that this is all concerned with man's approach to God. So, what are the particulars concerning the burnt offering. Well, I want to mention and bring a number of points to your attention. Firstly, the burnt offering, it does not originate in Leviticus, but it's found in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, if you consult a concordance, you will find at the first mention of the burnt offering, it's found in Genesis chapter 8 and the verse 20. It was offered by Noah after the flood waters had subsided, as a time when he offered burnt offerings of all the clean animals. We move a little further in the book of Genesis, and we find that God instructed Abraham to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering in Genesis chapter 22. When Moses, and we move on there in the early books of the Old Testament, when Moses told Pharaoh that Israel must take their, their cattle with them into the wilderness to worship their God, it was for the purpose that they would offer burnt offerings unto God. We read of that in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 25 and 26. Moving further, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he offered a burnt offering unto God in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 12. The Israelites, they offered up burnt offerings uh, when they met with God and received His law there at Mount Sinai. And we read of that in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 24, or chapter 24, and the verse 5. Now, while Genesis 8 verse 20 is the first mention of the burnt offering, I do not believe it was the first burnt offering that was offered to the Lord. We are told there in Genesis chapter 4 that Abel, he brought an offering unto the Lord. It's not specifically mentioned a burnt offering, but he brought an offering unto the Lord that was a more excellent sacrifice than Cain's. It was a meal, it was a firstling of the flock, and he brought the fat thereof, and that all indicates that he brought it all. He brought it all to the altar. Now, while it does not say, as I said, it was a burnt offering, it was an acceptable offering. And that really speaks to us of satisfactory atonement. We read that with respect to Abel's offering and God's approval of any offering in the Old Testament— it was manifested by sending fire, which burned up entirely the sacrifice. And God respected, God approved 
God put his mark upon that. Now, how that was, we're not specifically told, but studying the rest of Old Testament Scripture, many times God's approval was by the sending of fire to burn the sacrifice. Also, if it was an offering that was based on the pattern of what God had already done to provide coats of skins for Adam and Eve, then it's probable that it was the burnt offering. If we consider from verse 6 here in Leviticus chapter 1, that the animal's skin was flayed. And later on, Leviticus 7 and verse 8, that skin was given unto the priests. And so there's everything to suggest that Abel's offering, it was a burnt offering. And we can say that with confidence that the burnt offering was well established among the people of God as a way of approach unto God, before the events occur here in Leviticus chapter 1, even before God spoke unto Moses. Now, what does that teach us? Well, God has only one way of approach. And He's only ever had one way of approach, and it's been the same from the very beginning. And that way is through the one whom the burnt offering foreshadows. So there's a particular about the burnt offering. It doesn't originate here in Leviticus chapter 1. Secondly, the burnt offering was one of the most common offerings which was offered on a great variety of occasions. Often it was offered in conjunction with another sacrifice or offering. Now here in Leviticus chapter 1, we read of a personal voluntary offering made by any man, but there are other regularly stated and scheduled times for the burnt offering. Read a number of places in the Scripture. Example, Exodus 29 or Numbers 28. That the burnt offering was to be offered every morning and every evening. An additional burnt offering was to be offered up each Sabbath day. Also at the beginning of each month, at the celebration of the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, along with the new grain offering at the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Weeks as it's also called, a burnt offering was offered up at the Feast of Trumpets, also offered up on the Day of Atonement, and at the celebration of the new moon. There's a number of occasions when the burnt offering was also required for cleansing. And the burnt offering was given to God in that procedure. The burnt offering, it was required when uh, the woman was cleansed from the result of her childbearing. It was also offered when a leper presented himself before the priest after he was cleansed. It was offered when a man and a woman were cleansed from a discharge. And it was also offered when a Nazarite unintentionally defiled his vow by coming into contact with a dead body. When the congregation of Israel lay unwittingly, they failed to observe one of God's commands, well then a, a burnt offering was required for the purification of the congregation. A burnt offering was required for the consecration of Aaron and the sons and the Levites into the ministry of the tabernacle and the temple. And here we see that the burnt offering was the most common, it was the most important of all the sacrifices. God was firmly, He was firmly establishing the proper approach to Him through the symbolism of this offering. This is the significant offering here in Leviticus, uh, the opening seven chapters of these five Levitical offerings. 
Thirdly, the burnt offering was a whole burnt offering that was placed on the altar. Neither the offerer nor the priest partook of any of the meat, for all was burned in the fire. The only exceptions was the skin or the hide of the larger animals, the bullock, the sheep or the goat, or the feathers of the bird, because they were plucked off beside the altar. In most of the other sacrifices, the offerer himself, he, he had a portion. He took some of the meat. And in most, if not all, of the other sacrifices, the priests, they also had a part. They had a portion. But in this offering, all was the Lord's. This is the real significance of the term burnt offering. In Leviticus, we learn that it's called the burnt offering because it will would be burning upon the altar all night until the morning. And so it was something that was entirely, with the one exception, the outer coverings off the animals, it was entirely given unto the Lord. Now the Hebrew word translated burnt sacrifice there in verse 3, it's a word that means to go up, to ascend, to completely be taken away from one and to go up in its entirety. And this is an offering that typified the Godward aspect of Christ's atonement. This was an offering unto the Lord, and this stands at the head of the list for primarily the work of Jesus Christ is Godward in its nature, and secondarily, it's manward in its effect. And again, we see a, a firm principle established. Primarily, the work of Jesus Christ was Godward in its nature. It was an offering unto God. It was a satisfaction of God's justice. It was a propitiation of God's wrath. And then secondarily, it has the effects manward. We know the forgiveness of sins. We experience justification. We know what it is to be adopted into God's family by that one sacrifice for sin. We read three times of this burnt sacrifice in this opening chapter of it being a sweet, a sweet savor unto the Lord, unto the Lord. The imagery there is of, of a pleasant aroma ascending up to God with which He is pleased. And it's a whole burnt offering. And that signifies that all was rendered unto God. All was given to God. It was Godward in its nature. And that points to us primarily to the work of Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, it was Godward in its nature. And then secondary, manward in its effect. A fourth particular is concerning the animals used in sacrifice of the burnt offering. There were three types of animals permitted to be used a bullock from the herd, an animal from the flock, whether that be a sheep or a goat, or a bird, namely the turtle dove or the pigeon. And it would seem that the principal reason for providing several sacrificial animals is that the poor, the poor that they would not be restricted from coming and approaching unto God. Drawing nigh to God would not be restricted by one's social standing or financial status. For the poor, naturally speaking, they could not maybe offer a bullock unto the Lord. This 
sacrifice, this opportunity to draw near to God, it was open to all alike, whether wealthy or poor. All could come and make their approach to God. Provision was made for all types of men to come. And so it is with Christ. He's within reach of all, whether they be rich or poor. All may come to God by Him. All must come to God by Him. Now, while there are different types of animals that could be offered, God catering there for, uh, we could say, the different social standing and financial status of individuals, there were certain things that these animals had in common. These were clean animals. They were domesticated animals, the kind that the Israelite would raise and own. They would be their own possession. They belonged to them. The Israelites, they weren't to go out into the wild and shoot an arrow and kill an animal and bring it as a burnt offering unto the Lord. He must bring his own possession. Therefore, it had some value to the Israelite, and therefore, by that means, it would have been truly a sacrifice unto that individual. Not much of a sacrifice if you went out and, well, you trapped a, a rabbit or something like that. This is something that must belong to the individual. It was a clean animal. It was a domesticated animal. It was to be an animal of the highest quality. It was to be a young, a strong, productive animal, not one that was unproductive and only fit for the knacker's yard, as we might say, to be turned into glue. This was an animal that was in the prime condition of its life. It must be a male and not a female. An animal that had no blemishes, as we read in verses 3 and verse 10. And you go further on in the book of Leviticus, chapter 22, and the verse 20, and the verses following, God spells out there in more detail the type of animals that Israel, the Israelites may not offer, the lame, the sick, the maimed, all the rest of it. And here is a reminder that God requires that which is perfect. God requires perfection. He cannot be satisfied with any less because He is a holy God. He will not mitigate. He will not lower His standards for any. He didn't even lower His standards for His own dear Son. Now, there were times in Israel's history that they did offer to God that which was lame and torn and sick. And we read of that in Malachi chapter 1. But God was not pleased was not pleased with it. He called him out for it. He is not satisfied with anything less than perfection, for he's a holy God and he cannot tolerate sin. Now, there's more we could say about that, but I want to think about the rest of that and the application of that even in part two of the study. And these are just some of the general particulars concerning the burnt offering. It doesn't find its origin here in Leviticus 1, we find that there was different types of animals that could be offered. We find that it was the whole uh, offering given unto the Lord and also there's the most significant, the most important. And it was an offering that was offered at various and uh, multiple times in the uh, religious life there of the Old Testament. But secondary, or secondly, this morning, I want us to think about the procedure of the burnt offering. And Really, we have that here, the procedure. What was to happen? How was this to be offered unto the Lord? There's instructions here concerning the offerer, the officiate, which is the priest, and the offering. And it's all included here in this 
opening chapter and the opening nine verses, the offerer, well, he is much more involved in the process of sacrifice than we might think. Sacrifice for the offerer was a very personal experience. And you know, this was intended to make a very deep personal impression upon the Israelite who was making the sacrifice. And you know, coming to Christ, drawing near unto God, it's a very personal thing. Yes, we meet collectively, we meet corporately, and we're commanded to do that, and we shouldn't forsake doing that, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, but it's a very personal thing. You know, you can sit among the congregation and be in a great company of people, and yet your heart not draw nigh unto God. You can still be at a distance from Him. There's something there that's a barrier between you and God. And you really, you sit in the house of God on the Lord's day, and you never really truly enter into communion with Him. Oh, you might take part in all the outward performances, but there needs to be this personal drawing nigh unto God. And this is really what this chapter emphasizes here, the instructions here. There was other times corporate times, public times, when the, the burnt offering was brought unto and before the Lord. But this is a very personal thing. And we have instructions here concerning how this all was to be done. And we see the personal nature of this there in verse 2. If any man of you bring an offering, if any man. And you know, then from that point on, the personal pronoun, he, is employed, referring to the individual Hebrew. It's also apparent here that only meals, meals could make these offerings unto the Lord. It says, of any man. And you know, this would indicate that they represented their families, that they were the head of the home. And you know, we could think of Job and think about him as he offered up offerings unto the Lord there every morning for his own family, recorded in Job chapter 1 and the verse 5. And there is a point of application here for any fathers who are here or who are watching online. You know, fathers, we are the ones who are the representatives. We are the heads of our families, and we are to lead them in family worship. We are to be there to bring them and to draw them nigh unto God through the means that He has appointed, prayer and the reading of the Word, and also praise as well. That responsibility in the home lies upon the Father. Now, we know now that in the New Testament, and here it was very specific, and it does represent that, that the, the Father was the head of the home. He, he stood there on behalf of His family. But we know now that we believe in the universal priesthood of all believers. God has made us, that's all God's children, men and women, kings and priests unto our God. And therefore, well, there's no exclusion of a woman here. And women have every right to draw nigh unto God in worship, to approach God, to, to pray unto God, even in, in public worship now. And we encourage our ladies to do that. As I said, we believe in the universal priesthood of all believers, and every child of God has the right through Christ to approach unto Him. Now, what is the procedure in particular here? That's just a little aside, speaking of the personal aspect of it and how the men folk in those days brought it. What's the procedure? Well, the offering was to be offered, as we read in verse 3, 
at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, the brazen altar, it stood at the entrance into the tabernacle compound. In fact, it faced the door of the tabernacle. It was the first object of tabernacle or temple furniture that met the eye of the one who entered, who was making their approach to God. And here we're taught quite simply, quite plainly, that the way of approach to God is by sacrifice. It is by sacrifice. There is a God who has been offended, and there is a penalty that needs to be exacted if one is to draw nigh to God. That's very plain. That's very clear. The Israelite is only allowed to enter into the courtyard of the priests with a sacrifice. With a sacrifice, never without a sacrifice. And praise God, you and I, we come with a sacrifice of nobler worth than they, one that has been accepted. We approach God by the blood of Christ through Him who is our access unto the Father. We already mentioned the study of the tabernacle, how Christ is the door. But here we see that approach to God is by a sacrifice. He was to bring it. He was to offer it there at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Now, the offerer was then led by the priest with his offering to the side of the brazen altar. And there we read in verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Now the words put his hand upon, perhaps they do not convey the strength of the Hebrew word. The same word is translated lean in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 6. And you know that's an interesting verse because it speaks of a leaning with such force that the hand is pierced through. Another verse in which the word is translated lean in this way, it's, it's Psalm 88 and verse 7, Thy wrath leaneth hard upon me. The offerer was not simply to touch the animal gently, but he was to press down. He was to lean upon the head of the animal. And you know, that was a, a gesture that symbolized the transfer of the guilt of the Israelite off their sin, off their transgression, to the animal itself, leaning wholly upon it, resting upon it, imputing one's sins, transferring sin to that animal. And of course, that's a beautiful picture of the gracious work of God imputing our sin and our transgression to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we lean wholly upon Him. The Lord Jesus, He didn't just die simply because someone had to die. He must die as one who in the sight of God bore our sin. Christ was treated as guilty for our sins were imputed to Him. It's not simply that someone had to die. Christ must die. He was accounted guilty for our sakes. And therefore, God must exact punishment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we read in verse 5, as we continue on in this procedure, and he killed the bullock before the Lord. Verse 11, we have an extra detail, and he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward 
before the Lord. Now, who does the he refer to? Well, of course, there is some debate, some discussion, because it's not really made clear. Some think that this is speaking of the Israelite who brought the offering, since the priest is not mentioned until the next clause. But others think that this is a reference to the priest. For it's clear from verse 15 that the priest is the one who kills the bird and not offering. He is the one that kills the bird. And so the assumption is made that if he did that for the bird, well then, so it was the priest who did the same for the other animals, the bullock, the sheep, or the goat. And I would tend to lean towards the priest as the one who killed the animal. My reason for that is in the antitype. In the antitype, Christ. Christ is the one who made his soul an offering for sin. He is the one who laid down his life. No man took his life from him. But he laid down of himself. He was the one who gave up the ghost. And he did that in order that he might have authority, that he might have power to take it up Again, Now, whoever it was, whatever side someone wants to fall down on, if it was the offerer or if it was the officiate, the priest, the killing, whoever it was, was to be done before the Lord. We're told that before the Lord, in the sight of God, in according to the way that He has prescribed. And again, this emphasizes the point that the offering, it was an offering to the Lord. It was His justice that needed to be satisfied. Then we read, as we continue on, a very important detail concerning the blood of the animal. Verses 5, 11, and 15. Very important details concerning the blood. Yes, the animal was killed. We read in verse 5, And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 11, And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. Verse 15, And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. And so we see here that in the first two animals, the bullock, the sheep, or the goat, the blood was obviously collected in a basin. The blood was collected. And in the the bird, it was simply sprinkled there. It might have been collected too. It doesn't specifically say. And here we notice that there was always something done with the blood. Always. Why? Well, I mentioned the last time from Leviticus 17, verse 11, that it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It is the blood. Andrew Bonner, he said this, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and so as the blood was carried forth in the bowl, the life was carried forth to be presented before God. It was sprinkled round about and upon the altar as a sign that the sinner deserves the stroke of death in the presence of the Lord by which his justice would be satisfied. It is not simply the death of Christ that secured our salvation. Though that was the punishment for sin, it was the blood sinless, incorruptible, precious blood, blood like no other, which gave it infinite value that purchased our redemption and made atonement for our souls. And that's why we make much of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not simply that this is something of tradition. But we notice here that something was done with the blood. It was collected in a bowl. It was sprinkled round about and upon the altar, for it is the blood that makes atonement. Blood theology is very important theology. And it's our way of approach to God. Now, I'm only skimming over the details as I deal with the procedure. We're going to mention more about these things next time, Lord willing. We're going to see the picture that this all represents. And, well, you know the picture, the portrait that's being painted is that of Jesus Christ. Now, after the blood was collected and something was done with it, the animal was flayed, as you read in verse 6. This was done by the priests. If we compare 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 34, there's so many animals there that they ran out of priests to flay, to skin the animals. It was the priest who flayed the animal. It was the priest who plucked off the feathers of the bird. And what's the significance of this? Well, it's been suggested that this complete exposure of the victim, of the animal, it laid it open to the inspecting eye of the priest to make sure that it was without blemish, without spot, internally as well as externally. You see, only such a sacrifice would be pleasing to God. And you know, this teaches us that outward conformity to the law It's not enough. It's not enough. It can never be achieved by sinful man anyway. But it's also inward conformity. It's inward devotion to the law. It's inward delight in God's law. Not just keeping the letter off it, but keeping the spirit off it. That's what pleases God and Christ. Well, Christ, He's the Lamb without blemish and without spot. Both outwardly and inwardly, He is the perfect, acceptable sacrifice unto God. The animal was then, in this procedure, was then cut into pieces and laid upon the altar, as we read, verse 6, part B, through to verse 8. To quote Bonner again, he says, Entire dislocation of every joint, separation of every limb and member was the process. By this, the excruciating torment due to the sinner seems signified. Remember, Remember, the offerer watched us all. This should have been his lot. But the animal suffered in his stead as a substitute. And substitutionary suffering atonement was here signified. This is our due. Excruciating torment. But Christ the Lamb, He bore that for us. The parts, well, they were laid upon the altar that was prepared with wood and fire. Special mention made of the head and the fat. Remember, the head was the part that the offerer lent upon, pressed down upon. Therefore, the head, it signified, really representation of the offerer. We could mention there the federal headship of Christ. The fat... The fat, it was the part of the innards. And as upon this part, the fire would have most especially burnt. You know, if you're doing a barbecue, it's when the fat drips out of the meat or out of the sausages that the flame, it it comes up, it burns. And the flames rise higher. 
And Christ gave himself entirely unto God, both body and soul. And it was upon the soul of Christ especially that the wrath of God was poured out. Why upon the soul? Well, we're told that it is the heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's from the heart. It's from within that proceed all those evil thoughts and blasphemies and all the rest of it. It's from within. It's from the soul of man which is polluted, which is corrupt, which is fallen, which is depraved. It's from that soul that actual sins proceed. And therefore, upon the soul of Christ was the fire of God poured out. Before the priest offered the animal, he was to do one other thing. He was to wash the legs and the innards of the animal with water. Read that in verse 9 and verse 13. And once again, we have a picture that the Lord requires a perfect sacrifice. The legs of the animal were the legs of that which come into contact with the ground. And the legs must be washed to remove all defilement. The innards... Well, the innards, when the animal was broken up into its parts, dismembered. Well, the innards could have been contaminated with something from within the animal. And just in case, it was all washed down. And in this, we see, once again, the perfect nature and the purity of the sacrifice that needed to be offered. All was upon the altar, the head, the fat, You could say the innards, everything, with the one exception of the outer covering. And in this, the Israelite, well, they understood. They understood uh, the effect of sin upon their entire, his entire nature, that it needed a complete and perfect sacrifice. Sin has defiled man in every part. And therefore, there must be a perfect sacrifice to make atonement for him. Now, the fire originally came from heaven, and it was kept burning upon the altar. And that fire was a demonstration, a demonstration of the wrath of God revealed from heaven against sin. It's also a a demonstration of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. Now, there's something interesting about the verb burn in verse 9. When we read it there, to be a burnt sacrifice, uh, uh, the priest shall burn all on the altar. It's a word that's not so much to do with consuming. Rather, the primary meaning of the root word, it seems to be to exhale, exhale a, an odor, to turn into a fragrance with fire. It's the same word that's used for the burning of incense. Now, the word for burning in a common way, in order to consume the different parts of the animals that were carried outside the camp, and we read of that in, in Leviticus chapter 4. Well, that's a different word. But there's a distinction here in this word. It's a word that means to exhale an odor, to, to turn into a fragrance with fire. And the importance of the distinction is great when we bear in mind the meaning of the burnt offering. The substance of the victim was regarded not as something to be consumed, but as an offering of a sweet-smelling savor sent up in flames to the Lord. Not just simply something that's licked up in a flame of fire, but something that was to ascend to God 
in smoke, in a fragrance, a sweet savor unto the Lord. A portion of Scripture we can compare with this is Judges chapter 13. And the portion there, you know it is, Manoah and his wife, they're offering a burnt offering to the Lord. And we read in verse 20, For it came to pass, when the flame went up toward heaven, from off the altar, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame off the altar. Again, the flame going up and the angel ascending in the flame, it emphasizes the fact that the offering was Godward in its nature. It was something unto the Lord. And we have it there at the end of verse 9, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Those words can be translated a savor of rest unto the Lord. As if the burnt offering and who it foreshadowed stayed God's wrath, pacified His anger. Don't we read of Christ in Ephesians chapter 2 in the verse, or 5 in the verse 2? as the one who hath loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice unto God for a sweet-smelling savor. It is his sacrifice that has propitiated the wrath of God. And it's interesting in Revelation chapter 14 and the verse 11 that we read there of the lost. And we read of their smoke, of their torment, ascendeth up forever and ever. Now, you do a study of the ascending of smoke in Scripture. And it's often associated with the justice of God being satisfied. Now, while the lost are those who did not trust and rest on Christ's atonement, the righteous justice of God still demands that their sin is atoned for. It must be atoned for. All sin will be atoned for. And that's what the lost are doing in hell. They are atoning for their sin. A reason why they are not consumed, but the smoke of their torment arises up forever and ever. Though burning in torment, they will make, and they are making atonement for their sin. And yet they'll never be able to propitiate the wrath of God because there's only one atonement that satisfies, and that's the one that Christ made. His is the atonement of infinite worth to please an infinitely holy God. And it's for that reason that lost sinners will suffer eternally, for they will be eternally and everlastingly atoning for their sin. The smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever to all eternity. As I conclude this morning, we've come to God's house to worship Him. We've come to draw nigh to Him, but we, we don't have to go through all this precise procedure. You think about that. Think if we had to do this every time, every Lord's Day that we come into God's house. We had to go out. We had to get a lamb. David McClintock's fields would be empty of sheep, so they will. But you think about that. If we all had to go get something and to approach this way unto God, we don't need to do that anymore. To come near unto God. In the New Testament, 
dispensation of the covenant of grace. With all those types and those shadows fulfilled in Christ, we have have such freedom, we have such access to come to our God. The way is not different, though the form is. The way has always been by blood atonement. But the danger, the danger, just as it was in Old Testament economy, that we become familiar with this way, with this access, with this freedom that we have. And you know, these things, they just become a matter of rote and ritual to us. It's all external. It's not internal. All the significance of how we come to God is lost on us, and our heart's not really in it. And then we think then, well, you know, God God will be satisfied with any old way how I worship Him. He'll be satisfied with any old praise that I offer unto God. No, God cares about how we worship Him. It matters to him how we approach him in the way that he has appointed and provided. And that's what he's teaching here, the Israelites, in these Levitical offerings. Oh, may we never become familiar. Bring with us an old, lame, sick, torn sacrifice to our God. The significance of what Christ has done may not be lost on us. We can come right into the presence of God. He's promised to be here this morning. He's covenanted to be among His people. And yet I said that while we may be here, we may be in a corporate gathering in a public fashion, we ourselves personally, well, we might lose out in communion with God. All because our hearts are not right before Him. Because we're not coming the way that He has appointed. Did we prepare our hearts this morning? Think of the Israelite. He had to go out. He had to get that animal. He had to take time and preparation to examine it. Is this an acceptable offering to the Lord? Did we ourselves, did we take time to prepare ourselves to come to God's house? We ought to do that. Because He desires, He longs for us to come near unto Him, and He's removed the barrier that separates us from Him by the atonement that Christ has made. This morning, we have considered the particulars of the burnt offering and the procedure of the burnt offering. Next time, we're going to think about the principles of the burnt offering, the purpose of the burnt offering, and the picture of the burnt offering. But we'll leave it there this morning. And may the Lord bless the study to our hearts. We'll bow for prayer We'll ask the Lord to bless His Word to us. Father in heaven, we do rejoice that we have such freedom and access unto Thy throne of grace. We are brought near to God by Christ and by the Spirit. We thank Thee, O Father, for the blood atonement. And we thank Thee, Lord, that we can draw nigh to Thee. And as we do that, fulfill Thy promise and draw nigh to us. Remember us, Lord, in the public gallery in a few moments' time. O Lord, we pray that we would not be like the Israelites of old in Malachi 1, who were just going through all the ritual, all the outward performance, and yet, Lord, their heart was not in it. Lord, may we be engaged in worship of our God. Focus our mind. Elevate our attention. Give us the enlightening of the Spirit. And hear our prayer, O God, we ask of Thee. It is good for me to draw nigh unto God. And we thank Thee that we have put our trust in Thee. Do us good, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious and worthy name. 
Amen.